everyone, Christy here. You may notice that this isn't our normal publishing day, nor is it our normal format. And that's because the lovely Brian and Lauren, our friends on our sister podcast, Transatlantic History Ramblings, link in the show notes, put us in contact with historian and true crime author Mark Russell, author of the recent book Checkmate, The Wallace Murder Mystery. Link in the show notes there, too. So here is my interview with him, and keep an eye on this space, as this will not be the last interview we give you as a sort of bonus for being such awesome listeners. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. It's old-timey crimey. I'm Christy, and I am here with Mark Russell, the author of the book Checkmate, The Wallace Murder Mystery. So, hi, Mark. Hi, Christy. Thank you so much for joining us here on Old-Timey Crimey. Welcome to the show. And uh, would you would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, great to be here. Thanks, Christy. Uh, I've become interested in the Wallace case, you know, in um, 1975. I'm a research and historic, local historian, you know, and um, I became interested, as I say, in the Wallace case in 1975 when I seen um, an advert, you know, on tel- television about an upcoming drama documentary, and it just said, like, who killed Julia Wallace, you know. I was nine at the time, and I was astounded, and I shouted my mum in, you know, and said, um, have you seen this? And she said, oh, that happened quite, you know, not far from where we lived at the time. So I became interested in the case from that, you know. Yeah, it sounds like your family is uh, a little bit uh, <laughs> into true crime. You guys, you took a little ride over to to look at the scene, you know, the house where the murder occurred. Obviously, you weren't in there, you know, checking out old bloodstains or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we did. Uh, when, when the program aired, you know, we watched it. I think it was October the 29th, 1975. And even remember the date, you know. And um, my parents said, oh, we'll we'll go there tomorrow night, you know, the night after the show. So we ended up going up there. This is in the autumn, you know, dark. And it must have been about eight or nine o'clock at night we went there. And it it was, I was unnerved, you know. Um, but, you know, wanting to see the house. And remember me dad drove the car up. Because in, in Liverpool in, in the 70s, Christy, you know, even though there was cars about, there wasn't like... When we went into Wolverton Street, it wasn't bumper to bumper, you know, the cars. So you could park on the side and my dad parked up on the left-hand side and my mother pointed the house out and I thought it looked quite dark and sinister, you know. So, and after a couple of minutes of sitting outside the house looking at it, um, we drove away, you know, but that stayed with me, you know, for the whole of my life since. Yeah, and you've made a a book out of it too. definitely seems that that's one of those defining moments in a young writer slash historian's life. Yes, yes, definitely. I became obsessed with it, to, to use the word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so why don't you introduce our listeners to the, the major players in this case, like the basically the victim and the accused, who, who are we talking about and, and what happened? Well, the accused was William Herbert Wallace. He was age 52 at the time in January 1931. He was born in Millham, a town in the north of England, about 100, maybe 100 or so miles from Liverpool. 
And he ended up being, you know, he had different jobs, but he ended up being a collector for the Prudential Assurance Company. And um, he got that job in about 1915. He, as I say, he had different jobs. He, he he worked in Manchester for a while, and then he worked. He, he actually went to um, India and China. He spent five year, four or five years in India and China in the Far East. His brother actually worked over there, Joseph, as a compositor printer. But Wallace went over there with a company called White Away Laidlaw and Company, who were like outfitters, clothing and that. But um, after about four years, he ended up coming back, Wallace, in 1907 to England. And he had problems with his kidney, you know. Um, he'd had it operated on four times when he was in India. And then when he came back to England, he was um, he had it, his left kidney removed. So he suffered with his health a bit, you know. And then um, in about 1911, he moved to Harrogate, which is in Yorkshire, in the northern east side of England. And uh, there he met his wife, to be Julia Dennis, her name was. Now, at the time of the murder, Wallace, she was believed to be the same age as Wallace, you know, 52. And, um, well, anyway, after a courtship in, for three years in 1911, he met, they were finally married in 1914. And within a year of that, Wallace, Wallace's job, the Prudential, he ended up moving to Liverpool, the Liverpool area. So he... He was four months in, in a previous house before they moved to Wolverton Street, was where the crime happened. Now, they're the main two, you know, players in the case, basically. And they just, they seem very just normal every day. I mean, I can I can see that kind of almost true crime cliche of, of the reporters, you know, interviewing their neighbours and you know, neighbours saying, well, I don't know, he just seemed like a normal guy. Yeah, yes, you're right. I mean, after the case and all that, you know, and the prosecution at the trial and even the police investigations, they said they couldn't find any motive or any proof that the Wallaces, you know, had any arguments or they seemed all in all to each other. Yeah, that led them to go uh, in an interesting direction with uh, with motive, which we'll, we'll get there. But uh, before we do, why don't you outline the actual the, the murder, what happened on that on that night? And I, I guess starting the night before, because there's an important event then, too. Yes, yes. On the 19th, uh, the, the Monday night before that, um, Wallace was a member of the Central Chess Club in Liverpool. He liked playing chess, although not a great player, but he was, you know, he, he loved the game. Well, this night he um, he attended the club. He got there he, about quarter to eight and apparently there'd been a telephone message left for him. A caller had called about... 20, 25 minutes before Wallace arrived. The chess club captain, Mr. Samuel Beatty, he took the he took the, um, the the message and you know, and he went over to Wallace and said, um, there's been a call for you, Mr. Wallace. And Wallace said, Oh, who from? And he and the, and Mr. Beatty said, A caller by the name of R. M. Qualtro. Now that's an unusual name, but in Liverpool, it's you know, Liverpool's a lot of immigrants come here from the Isle of Man and that my own ancestors are from the Isle of Man actually and it, it's a name Q-U-A-L-T-R-O-U-G-H it looks like Qualtrough but it's pronounced Qualtrough and Wallace said I don't know anyone of that name uh, what's the address and Mr Beatty said that he wants you to call on the following evening the Tuesday the 20th at 25 Menlove Gardens East in the Mossley Hill area of Liverpool which is about four miles south of from Wallace's house and Wallace said, Menlove Gardens East, I don't know it. Is it Menlove Avenue? Now, Menlove Avenue is a, 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 a 
large thoroughfare that goes for a couple of miles through Liverpool. And Mr. Beatty said, no, men love Gardens East. So Wallace didn't really think any more of that. What it was, was the, the caller had said, Mr. Coulthrow had said that it was in the nature of Wallace's business, you know, being a collection agent. He wanted to take a, a policy out on for his daughter's 21st. Now to Wallace, he was, he was you know, allow, allowed to go into other areas with his, um, on, on business. But, um, and he thought he'd get a pretty good commission out of it. Well, anyway, Wallace didn't think any more of that. Puts the message, uh, the written down message in his pocket and carries on with his chess game, you know. Well, the following day, he's doing his collection rounds in an area close to Anfield called Club Moor that day, the Tuesday. And he arrives home about six, five minutes past six on in the evening. He says he has tea with his wife, Julia. And she, apart from a slight cold, she seemed okay. She had like a, a, a cold. Well, anyway, Wallace said he left the house at quarter to seven and took three trams, streetcars in the US <laughs> and um, to get to the area. Well, anyway, um, about 20 past 70, the third tram he alights from and says to the conductor, I'm a stranger in the area, I don't know the area. The conductor says, you'll find Men Love Gardens that way. So he, he goes round. Well, anyway, he finds out that there's a Men Love Gardens north, south and west, but no east. He asks a young 23-year-old clerk, it, it appears, um, Sydney Green, if the, if there's a Menlove Gardens East around there, and he says he doesn't live that far away. He says there's no Menlove Gardens East. Have you tried Menlove Gardens West? So Wallace says I'll try there. So he knocks at 25 Menlove Gardens West. The lady of the house comes to the door and says, "No, there's no there's no East, and there's no one here by the name of Walter. So this is you know it's not her address." So Wallace, uh, Wallace then continues on. He crosses he, he crosses the main road of Menlove Avenue and goes down another street called Green Lane. Now, it emanates that Wallace's superintendent, his boss at the Prudential, lives in Green Lane. And Wallace said afterwards that I realised then where I was, because he had visited Mr. Crew. He ends up going down to Allerton Road to look, he says, to look at, the, at the, to try and find a directory, you know, for the address. And there he meets a policeman, James Sargent, and he asks him, and the, the policeman says, there's no such place as Menlove Gardens East. There's a north, south and west. So Wallace says, um, he, he compares times with him, with the with the uh, policeman, which the defend, uh, the prosecution afterwards thought that he was, um, you know, establishing where he was at the time. And apparently it was quarter to eight. But in Wallace's defence, he said, no, it was, um, it was comparing the times because I wondered if the shops would be closed, where it was going to, which is a fair point. Well, anyway, the policeman says, well, there's a post office there. Wallace tries there, the post office, but they haven't got a directory. So he crosses the road to a news agent on Allerton Road. He's looking at a directory there. Then he finally gives up the ghost and heads back home at about sometime after eight o'clock. Well, anyway, he gets to get, he reaches his house, he says, at quarter to nine. And, um, you know, this is precisely two hours after he'd left the house in his evidence. And um, he said he couldn't get in through the front door. So he tried going around the back door. He couldn't get in there. So he went around the front again. And he said he couldn't get in there again. His key wouldn't work in the door. And he goes around the back again. And as he's walking past the back yard door, he sees his neighbours in number 31, John and Florence Johnson, coming out of the house. And he says to them, Mrs Johnson says, 
good evening, Mr. Wallace. And he just says, um, have you heard any, anything unusual? And they say, no, why? He said, I can't get into the house. I've tried the front door and the back. Well, anyway, the houses in England are terraced houses, you know. So he, he managed, the backyard door actually into the yard is open, but it's the backyard door into the house that he, he had difficulty with. And he says um, she won't have gone out as his wife, you know, Julia, because she's got a bad cold. So they wait, the neighbours, the Johnsons, while he goes in the house. Now, when he walks up to the door, he puts his hand on the handle and opens the door with no problem whatsoever. And the Johnson said afterwards that he didn't put a key in it. And Wallace says, it opens now, you know, mysteriously. So he, go he goes in the house, they wait outside, and he's looking through the house. And within two minutes, two or three minutes, he comes out in an excited manner, Wallace, and says, come and see, she's been killed. So the Johnsons go into the house with him. And they go into the front parlour. This is the room that's overlooking the street. They go into the front parlour, and Julia's lying dead on the, on the hearth rug in a diagonal diagonally across the hearth rug, and she'd been bludgeoned to death. Now, the pathologist after it, Professor McFall, said she'd been hit with, the first blow had been hit with terrific force, you know, when he'd conducted his autopsy on it. The first hit had been, she'd been struck with terrific force, and then another 10 blows to the back of the head, but with less ferocity. That's the scene of the murder, yes. So then... Uh, he actually, he, he obviously, as, as you mentioned, he gets arrested for it yes. and is, is, it's such an interesting case in the, the possibility what the, what the police said was that he had sort of pre alibied himself. Like the night before he had made that phone call to the chess club, basically calling for himself and setting up the circumstances that he would be, a, you know, away from the house the following night. Or there's the other theory that somebody else called in order to set him up to be away yes. from the house. Yes, yes. That's right. I think what also made the police suspect Wallace, I mean, as you know, Christy, murders, when they're in a, within a household, the first thing the police look at is the spouse, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think that Wallace, he said he was a Stoic. Now, the Stoic is a philosophy like it comes from Greece, but the, the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius of Gladiator fame, he was probably the most famous Stoic of all. And the Stoic philosophy is that whatever life throws at you, you just absorb basically and just get on with it without complaining. Now Wallace's, he claimed he was a Stoic. Now the police thought at the time that he was indifferent to his wife's death. You know, he didn't show any emotion when they're looking around the house, and he acted in like a emotionless manner. And even Professor McFall said at the trial, you know, the, even he found it, he was more affected himself as a pathologist than Wallace seemed to be. But in Wallace's defence, you see, people say, oh, well, he was a stoic and he wasn't showing any emotion. Although, although Mrs. Johnston said when he was in the back room with her, the kitchen area, that he broke down twice, you know. So, but um, I think what it was that the police, when they checked the house, they couldn't find any evidence at all of a break-in you know they checked the, the doors the windows and the backyard wall to see if anyone had scaled over the wall climbed over it and they couldn't find any evidence you know the, there was a burglar yeah that that i found interesting and definitely uh points more towards wallace you can understand why the police after finding that uh would be you know continue on that that line of thinking with uh with mr wallace 
One one thing that threw me off a little bit was that there was small amounts of money moved around, and then there was a, a front bedroom that seemed kind of upended, like you know, uh, the bedclothes pulled off a little bit, and and you know, like some of the clothes and purses that that I guess uh, Julia kept there, not uh, in their regular places. And I was wondering what you made of that. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, as as you know, we. With him being a collector and that, there was money in the house. Now, when he'd done his rounds this week, he'd had influenza, you know, on the previous couple of days, uh, the Saturday, and he didn't do any collecting round then. But he collected on the Monday and then half the Tuesday. So the collection he'd had, he didn't collect as much money, you know, and he paid, I think he got £14, but 10 of that he paid out back out to, you know, clients in sickness benefits. So he, he said afterwards, I'll have to check my books, but I think there's about £4 missing. Now, in the back kitchen area, in the kitchen area, we told you about before where he was with Mrs. Johnston while the police were in the front area. There was a cash box about seven foot two and a half inches from the floor on a top shelf. Now, Wallace kept saying, he said to the Johnstons and he also said to the police, he drew their attention to this. He took it down. It was still on the shelf. He took it down. He said, um, this, some of the money's been taken from this. And that's the money that he said was about four pounds. Now, the police thought this was suspect right away because, in their eyes, a thief wouldn't return the, the cash box, you know, to the to the top shelf. And um, when the different several different police came, he, you know, they conducted the search through the house with him. And in the middle bedroom upstairs, there was a vase on the um, mantelpiece, you know, and it had four four pound notes in it. And Wallace drew the attention to that as well. Now. This is the problem with, you know, a burglar being in the house. Because like you're saying before, Christy, there's, there was sums of money in different places in the house that he didn't take. Now, Wallace is saying that the, what amounted to £4, you know, some of that was like in in um, pound treasury notes and sh- shilling notes and in 30 and 40 shillings in silver. But the, the money upstairs, I mean, a burglar would have surely taken that money. Yeah, it's a curious thing. The the just little bits of money missing from a couple of very specific and also in in one case hard to reach areas. It's yeah. it's odd, but it, the thing that that I guess bothers me is that you have someone who if if Wallace did it, he's smart enough to the day before set up this elaborate alibi in which he is seen and talks to many people who can place him during the period when the murder might have happened. But then he's also not bright enough to make a pretend burglary look real, you know? Right, right. And what you said before as well, going back to the point of like the front bedroom, you know, the... um they're like blankets and someone to pull the sheets off the bed, you know. And Wallace said, I haven't been in this room for, th- for for nearly two weeks, you know, so I can't, I can't like comment on it. You know, like you're saying, there was hats on the bed and Julia's stuff. And what the police thought was that it, it's probably an amateurish way of making it look like someone had been ransacking the house. But in the front bedroom upstairs, there was like a wardrobe and a chest of drawers and, it didn't look like these have been rifled at all, you know, in the, in the opinion of the police. So, and what you're saying there is a good point about, um, you know, a bit amateurish certain things. And, and you know, uh, the point that several people have made to me in the past have said um, he thought he was too clever, but 
he wasn't clever enough for the police. He was too clever. That he made basic errors, you know. I mean, that's from the point of view of people who believe it was Wallace. Yeah, I agree with that. If it was Wallace, he was both uh, both too clever and not clever enough at the same yes, time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. Now one one thing that fascinates me is they they held a trial and everything without ever having found the actual murder weapon, which that's that's a lot of. Uh, questions to put into the mind of the jury like like there's really no clear idea of what it might be there was a fireplace poker that seemed to be missing but at the same time it was just very confusing and and as far as what the murder weapon might have been what were your thoughts on that yes the wallaces used to employ a char lady you know who used to come around every wednesday sarah jane's raper and she hadn't been for uh, two weeks she hadn't been since the 7th of january I think her, her, her husband passed away, so she hadn't been to Wallace's house, you know. And when she turned up that day, just by chance, you know, the Wednesday when the police were there, and Detective Gold, the, one of the detectives, asked her to look around the two rooms and to, to notice if there was anything missing. And she said, yes, from the kitchen area where the range was, there was a poker there. They used to have a poker there that's not there now. And in the front room where Julia was dead found murdered, the crime scene. She said they used, there was an iron bar that you, they used to keep by the gas fire because they had a gas fire there. And she said uh, it was about a foot long, 12 inches long and about an inch thick, like a candle, very heavy. It was kept there basically to scrape things up that had been by the fire, any ash, any stuff there. But she said a screw had come off the um, fire. So it was there two weeks before because she used it to retrieve a, a screw that had fell off the fire. And she said, that's missing. Now, the point, like you're saying there, Christy, is that no weapon being found, in my eyes, personally, I, if it was an unknown person who'd come to the house or a burglar, they wouldn't be bothered about taking the weapon away with them. If they made them Mrs. Wallace, they'd just leave the weapon there, wouldn't they? He might. It really, I think it depends on, I think it depends on the murderer, because, uh, you know, fingerprints were... We're in use at that point in time, so if they're they're smart enough to know that their you know fingerprints could potentially lead back to them, then they they might take it with them. But if it's right. just somebody who's just in you know in a, crazed in a fit of rage, not somebody who's really um, thinking about the future, which I don't think uh, this this if they set this all up for Wallace to be gone at the time so that they could come in and, and murder Julia, it doesn't seem like somebody who <laughs> doesn't think ahead. But if it was that kind of case, like a, a frenzy kind of killing, then then they might not bother taking the weapon. But yeah, it seems like this is the work of a of a planner, and so maybe they they know that fingerprints could potentially lead to them, and so they they take the murder weapon with them. But if that's not the case, if it was Wallace, what did he do with the murder weapon? Yes. Well, also, if it was another person, a burglar or prospective burglar, wouldn't they have brought a weapon with them in the first place? Yeah. 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 There's that. So that it wouldn't necessarily be the case that you would have the missing items from around the fireplace. It's yes. interesting because we've been uh, on the show. We've, we've recently uh, wrapped up recording and we'll soon be airing uh, episodes on Lizzie Borden. Oh, right. Yes. We were talking about that the other day. Funny enough, you mentioned it. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, there, there's there's a couple of different similarities between the, the, the murder weapon that was never identified and, and found Yes. Probably. And then the case of them, them both being very like stoic individuals. Yes, definitely. 
Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird how there's these, these similarities between the two. Yeah. Well, also, um, Christy, um, you know what they did search the house for the weapon, you know, the, the police, I mean, they looked around the house and the funny thing is Wallace, he, he had an interest in chemistry, you know, and he had, he'd adopt, he'd adapted his back, one of the back rooms upstairs into a like makeshift workplace, you know, he was in a laboratory. He used to, um, he used to give lectures in the local ten- uh, the city centre technical college in Liverpool on chemistry for five years. So he was, and what happened was, you see, he did have several different types of tools in that room. Now, people seem to overlook this. That it's possible if he, if Wallace did use one, could he have used something in it out of his laboratory? But regarding the, um, you know, disposing of the weapon, I mean, the police did search the house. They searched. Even the local area, you know, I mean, there's only so far they can search, isn't there? But they searched around the area, you know, several places in like the middens, which would be in the alleyway, you know, where bin, where refuse is collected from. But they never found the weapon. But you see, with them taking three trams to the Allen area, uh, Menlo Gardens area, four miles away, could he have disposed of it on the way there? You know, that's the general belief, if it was Wallace. The, I think I think there's a high probability if he did it that that murder weapon ended up in the roadside weeds uh, or you know like tossed over a bridge or something if the tram went over any bridges uh, on on his route. Yeah, even you know like in a grid down a grid maybe somewhere because like I say you know the people could say well would Wallace take that chance? I suppose in the area he's going to in Mossley Hill, I've timed the area myself and it can determine. He could have rushed down a, a side street, you know, if it was Wallace, and thought, I'll take my chances here and deposit down a grid or something, you know. But as I say, there was only a certain amount of, like, investigation that the police could do. He did, in some of the areas near to his house, he did, like, uproot shrubbery and that, you know, and but he'd never found anything, no. And then another fascinating aspect, I think, to this case was the Macintosh. Now, for, for our American listeners, that is like a raincoat. And yes. uh, in my research, I, I found that only uh, true Macintoshes are rubberized. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So uh, <laughs> do we know if this was a true Macintosh? No. Okay. No. One of the previous authors on the book, you know, asked James Murphy, who wrote a book, and he said it was like probably of like wool or worsted type worsted, is it? You know, and it burned quite easily. I mean, a lot was made of the Macintosh, yes. <laughs> yeah, much much ado about a coat uh, here, but yes, there was. So the Macintosh was found under Julia's body, sort of, and like you said, it was it was slightly burned, as as were the front of her, as was the front of her skirt. But yeah, talk to us about the the, the case that was made, the different uh, theories about the Macintosh. Yes, well, what what was believed was that, in Wallace's defense, was that when he went out the house, a co- someone had called at the house, you know, and Julia had admitted them, admitted them into the house. Now, it was the general practice then, Christy, you know, people from parlours in Liverpool was used mainly for guests or visitors, People lived in the back room, which was like a kitchen area with a with a kitchen range for the heater. And what the belief was that Julia had um, admitted someone into the house and um, probably might have put the Macintosh over the shoulders, you know, to open the front door 
it being a cold night and had shown the person into the front room and she, she bent over the gas fire to um, turn the gas fire on, you know. And the belief was then that the person, whether it was Wallace or a guest, a visitor, had bludgeoned her as she leaned over the fire. Now, the belief was that she fell onto the fire, which would be, you know, verified by the amount, of, by the Macintosh burns on it. And also her skirt, like you're saying, it had marks from the gas fire, you know, exactly the same. And they found ashes from the Macintosh near the, on the hearth rug. And that was the side, that was one way of looking at it's possible that she'd done that. Also, but me personally, I think that, you know, a lot was made of the Macintosh, probably too much, to be honest. But for, from the prosecution, I mean, the prosecution believed that at one point that Wallace might have committed the murder naked, except for wearing a Macintosh, you know, to avoid to avoid the blood spatter. But I don't think I don't think that was the case. I think it's possible that he could have used a Macintosh as a shield, you know, to avoid to cover him, you know, um, from having blood spatter on himself. So that was the side from the uh, prosecution that they believed, you know, that that was the reason why the Macintosh was was used. Yeah, it's interesting, the idea of somebody just completely stripping and then putting on, you know, essentially a raincoat in order to commit a murder. It's not the yes. first time, it wouldn't be the first time it, it's happened in history. And we even have, um, you know, similar cases from, from media, you know, American Psycho. He he dons a whole <laughs> setup in yes. order to avoid the blood spatter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's an interesting idea. And then I also, I, I mean, I question both, both theories, the defenses and the prosecutions, because... I mean, granted, I'm I'm not a woman in my fifties in uh, in Chile, England, although I'm in I'm in Chile, Pennsylvania. So, <laughs> but nice. I've never put a coat on to go to the door, you know, nice. or or even tossed one over my shoulders. I've never even thought about it, and nice. uh, so. But I can't, you know, I, we certainly can't judge everybody's actions, but by what I have or haven't done. But I don't even think I've even really seen people do that but maybe you know if she was perennially cold that might have been just her habit too so there's many questions there no that's a very good point though christy because when wallace was asked when he left you know when he was going to the um mental gardens area he said he left the house a quarter to seven and what did he, uh, the prosecution said was um was your wife alive when you left and he said certainly she came down the backyard with me to, and to bolt the door, you know, the backyard door that led into the alleyway. So this is outside the house. And when he said to him, did your wife have a Macintosh on then? He said, no. Now, if she's not going to wear one to go out on a cold night, she's certainly not going to go wear one in my eyes to open the front door, which is only like 10 yards down, down the doorway. And which, you know, the prosecution would say, yeah, because his wife never went to the backyard door with him. She was already dead. It's certainly, yeah, there, there, there's there's plenty of holes that can be poked in the right. things that he yes. says. And he provides some of those sometimes. I mean, if if his wife had not, in fact, walked with him to the gate because she was already dead, then if you're making up the story already, then you can say, well, yes, she had a coat on. <laughs> yes, <laughs> just, yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's it seems like, yeah, it, we, we again run into that issue of is he is he too clever or is he not clever at all? 
Yes, and I think what it was, what I think personally, you see, he's, he's muddying the waters, so to speak. You know, yeah. he's, putting, he's putting doubt there. Yeah, I agree with you. And another thing that we mentioned earlier is the fact that the prosecution really struggled to find a motive. Uh, so uh, they they went for the kidney, which is interesting. I've never seen this before. Why don't you tell us about that? Oh, yes. You know, the a couple of medical experts said he had kidney problems, like I said, right throughout his life. And about 1930, he had renal failure, you know. And uh, several of the doctors said that this type of illness, right, can have an effect and it can basically affect an individual's like um you know it can cause delusions and mania and temporary fits of insanity so i think i mean it's premeditated the murder if it's wallace so would would that be like dismissed that it could be mental you know yeah again you have the prosecution arguing kind of two different sides of the coin you know both he's he, he set this up and it was premeditated but also he's you know uh having delusions and fits of psychotic rage or whatever and and yes. killing his wife but that's that's definitely a spur of the moment thing that's not something you plan for by setting yourself up for an alibi the night before no and and professor mcfall the, the pathologist i told you before was conducting you know the his examinations in the post-mortem. He said at the trial that, um, in his opinion, the murder was caused in a frenzy. Well, you could argue when someone's been bludgeoned 10 times or 11 times, they're going to be in a frenzy, aren't they? It's like, you know, the Bordens in the Borden case, the two axe murders, you know. Yeah, they were, uh, if uh, memory serves, having just did that one, uh, her father got 10 or 11 and her stepmother yes. got 18, not the... That's right. Not yeah, the storied, altogether. Yeah, not the storied 40 wax and 41 wax from the... From the yes, yeah. Time. <laughs> yeah. But that's another thing. You don't frequently see that kind of brutality except in cases of, of rage and, and sometimes passion. I mean, that's that's... It's, those are strong feelings. That's not, I'm here to steal a couple of pounds from, you know, a, a cash box that's up seven feet. That's, yes. that's I hate you, murders. Exactly. Yes, definitely. Good points. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people believe this, Christy, that, you know, yeah, it's personal, isn't it? It's something personal. It's like, would, uh, you know, if a burglar came in, now people might say in his defense, in Wallace's defense, that no, a killer would want to make sure she was dead, but the first blow was enough to kill her. The pathologist said that, Mr. McFall, uh, um, and the actual blow to the left side of the head, he he, he deemed that that had such, such terrific force, it would have been enough to kill her. And the other, you know, the other 10 blows that were administered when she was away from the fire on the floor, death would have occurred within 30 seconds. But like you're saying there, it seems so, you know, ferocious, it seems something personal. I think that's another reason why the police thought it was Wallace. Yeah, it definitely speaks to that uh, being somebody who was who was close to her. That was yes. a question I had as I was reading was, did they look at close family at all? After, I mean, they, they seem to focus on him pretty quickly. Was there potentially a case of tunnel vision here? Um, possibly. The, the police asked... Well, can you give us a list of people who might be admitted into the house? So Wallace gives different people, you know, um, a couple of co-workers who are the main two suspects now. 
One was 22-year-old Richard Gordon Parry. He'd worked for the Prudential and he covered Wallace's round sometime, a, couple, a few times when Wallace was ill a couple of years before. And another man by the name of Joseph Marsden. Now, they looked up these people and they had alibis for the night of the murder, you know. But um, Wallace's sister, uh, sister-in-law, um, Amy Wallace, who was married to Joseph. Well, Joseph lived in um, the Malay States, you know. He, his work was over there. But she lived, his wife, Amy, lived over in, she lived in Liverpool with her, with their son, Edwin. And um, they were, the, you know, they were the cl- probably the closest family that they had. I mean, Julia's family, she cut off all relations to them a long time before. And I don't think they had any, you know, they weren't very close, her family. She, she's always been a very mystical mystical sort of person and you know we don't all as we know about her is what wallace has told us and another thing christy um it's only in the last 20 years that it came it emanated that julia was actually 17 years older than wallace yeah that's quite the the revelation um yes to have and that it's especially coming so late you know one would think we we might know that you know there would have been some sort of record uh, especially like, like somebody had to to make up her her death certificate and when you do that you have to put on a date of birth so i guess they got it from wallace and just it took him at his word <laughs> yes definitely i mean the thing is i mean the police have been criticized in many books uh, now i don't i don't think the police were incapable you know as bad as people make out but i do think they made a bit of a faux pas on it that he never investigated Julia's background and I mean when Wallace when he married in 1914 Wallace was um, 36 and Julia was nearly 53 but on the marriage certificates he's listed as 36 and she's listed as 37 and at the you know when he gave his statements he said I am 52 years of age my wife who I believe is the same age now I think there's no doubt they've known he's known that she's been 17 years older than him, hasn't he? One would hope that he knows his wife's age, or at least you know yes. a a general ballpark. Yes, <laughs> you know? yes, definitely. Um, I mean, the only other possibility is that she managed to pull off a, a lie on him for they were married <laughs> for what, like six, 16 years, 17 yes, years. Yes, yes, true. Um, yeah, true. That would be an awfully, awfully long time to be able to to lie like that, and you know, eventually the we we can't really escape it. You know, time time tells the truth. Yeah, catches up with us. Yes. Yeah. You, you know, you might be able to pass it off at a younger age, but the older you get, you're going to look seventeen years older, aren't you? I, th- I think. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, we, you talked a little bit about the the police and some some criticisms of them. I, I found it really interesting and, and kind of in, in, infuriating that the police were able to perform whatever tests they wanted to at the crime scene, but Wallace's defense team wasn't able to. No, that's true. Yes, it was a thing. And, you know, um, I mean, at the committal proceedings, even this is the court case. We call it a magistrate's court now. Do we call it police courts? At the, at the committal proceedings, it was mostly for the prosecution case and the defense didn't even have really much chance there to say much and um so most of what would be um, reported in the newspapers christy would be in favor of the police and negative to wallace you know so 
you could you could say that well that's a bit of a miscarriage of justice you know or it's not really fair but that was the way it was then and yeah most of the um, the investigation was yeah the police you know yeah it feels uh even if that's like the way it was done it, it certainly feels unfair because it makes it a lot easier to railroad someone yes yeah then there are some some forensic type things uh first the 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 blood clot on the toilet there was just a little spot of of blood and you at one point referenced another author who called that one of the biggest red herrings <laughs> in british legal history so yeah. tell us about how that how that all shook out oh right yes um well while we were searching the house you know looking around the house they actually the police actually used two large lamps that were they'd hired from the uh, liverpool fire brigade you know, because, you know, in them days, lighting in houses, it was gas. And they wanted to, you know, really scrutinise the areas. And everywhere they looked in the house, they couldn't, with the exception of the blood in the living, in the uh, parlour, they couldn't find any outside the house, outside the living room, you know, even in the backyard area and the front of the house, outside the exterior. But in the in the um, bathroom upstairs, um, yes, they found a um, clot of blood on the toilet rim of the three sixteenths of an inch in diameter and one eighth of an inch in height. And um, it was only after about an hour of his um, investigations that Professor McFall found this because in the darkened thing. But what was believed was the the killer had gone upstairs and deposited it accidentally using the bathroom, you know, to wash his hands. But when it emanated, when the um, defence made experiments, they deemed that this clot of blood could have been deposited an hour before it was found because it was, you know, it had formed in such a way that it, it wouldn't have been right away. And what, what it was believed was that it was possible that one of the police on the scene had actually, you know, picked it up accidentally on their clothing and it might have fell there. But, I mean, there's not even any... I mean, you could argue that it might have already been there before the murder... But I, I, I think what yeah, you're saying, James Murphy, the previous author, who wrote about like it being the um, biggest red herring in British history, a lot was, two things were made a lot of that really weren't going to tell you much. One was the blood clot and the other was the burnt Macintosh, you know. Yeah, they, they definitely, there was a lot made of both of those, a lot of time devoted to those in, in both the investigation and the trial. Uh, another mm. thing that seemed to be a big... Uh, what was it was something that the defense was able to poke holes in was the medical experts' determination of time of death. Oh, uh, yes, right. Yeah, first of all, they 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 seemed uh, not to be the note taking type. <laughs> no, you're right, and they, even the body taking temperature type. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't even occur to them. I mean, there was two doctors on on you know pathologists there, McFall, as I said, and Doctor Hugh Pierce, and neither of them took the temperature of the body or the room, which is extremely lax, isn't it? Yes, that's so extremely lax. It's unbelievable that they wouldn't do those those very basic things, and I'm pretty sure those were considered very basic even even back then for, for even pathology. Even back then, yeah, very true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, aggravating to see that kind of, uh, that kind of lax uh, effort put in by people who are supposed to be medical experts. Experts, exactly, yeah, very true. Yeah. 
So, so yeah, that was because that became obviously time of death generally tends to become important, especially when you have a timeline involved. But that became so important because of the fact of the the sort of you know alibi that Wallace had. So it was you know like did he kill her just before or was she still alive? A lot of that depended on the time of death, which was kind of uncertain due to the not taking notes and not taking temperatures. Yes. And, you know, most of McFall's points that he drew the conclusions from, from rigor mortis, which is very, you know, it's, it's, it's a fallible test. Even today, Christy, you know, modern forensics, he would never just go by rigor mortis, would he? No, no. There's certainly other tools we have available now. And, uh, but yeah, they didn't even use the tools they had available then. So it's, it's no. kind of appalling. You know, on an even he got there about ten to ten, Professor McFall, and when he, you know, he said he didn't make note of that, but he said his opinion that night was that um, the victim had been killed two hours before his arrival. Now he arrived at ten to ten, so what he's saying is about ten to eight or eight o'clock, and that the victim had been hit four times, you know, with terrific force. Now, within a day of this, when he's performing his autopsy in the Prince's Dock Mortuary in Liverpool, he completely contradicts this, and he says that she'd been killed four hours before he got there. So, in other words, it's six o'clock. Now, the problem with that is there was a milk boy, Alan Close, and he delivered the milk to Wallace's house sometime between half six and quarters to seven, and he actually spoke to Mrs. Wallace. So that pokes a hole, like you said, in you know the theory that she was killed at six o'clock. Yeah, it certainly it certainly does, um, and we have no way of knowing if if that time of death is even accurate because of the the lack of rigor uh, by the by the experts. So it, it definitely there's the, as far as muddied waters go, they just get muddier and muddier with every step. You do, you do. You're right. <laughs> but which we- would, which if Wallace was guilty, he'd be quite happy of. Yes, I would imagine he would be kind of secretly delighting in that oh. behind his stoic demeanor. Yes. <laughs> uh, and we do get a guilty verdict, but interestingly, not for long. This this doesn't happen too often in these, these older cases. These reversals of convictions are, are much uh, a, a more modern thing as we have more technology like DNA and such. So what can you tell us about the reversal that came came about? Yeah, that, you're right. Um well, after the four days, you know, he was found guilty. But the judge at the trial, he was directing the jury to find him not guilty. You know, a lot of people thought, even though it looked, you know, odds on that Wallace had done it, that the, there was no conclusive proof. It was all circumstantial. And what the people say is that he was, it is called a Scots verdict, you know, not proven. The Scots, in Scotland, they have a verdict where it's guilty not guilty or not proven. Well, anyway, um, at the acquittal, he went to the acquittal a month after the, you know, the trial at the Royal Court of Justice in London, which were the law courts then. And after a two-day hearing, his conviction was quashed. The, the appeal judge said that it hadn't been proved, you know. Yeah, um, an overturned conviction. I mean, that must have been yes. a big surprise for everybody. It was because at the time, you know, they thought this sort of thing didn't happen much. There'd only been two previous convictions overturned, you know, quashed, and neither of them were in with this sort of, like, you know, manner. But they said, like, you know, the verdict couldn't be supported with regards to the evidence. In other words, that the jury had got it wrong. But it didn't look good for Wallace, but 
you know, in the end, it, it did get quashed. Yeah, yeah. I really actually, I like the, the Scott's idea of the, the not proven, having that, that third option. I think it would make things much easier. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Just having those two, you know, black and white options, not guilty, guilty. Uh, mm. It's definitely it makes it a, a, a lot more difficult. I've I've often wondered if if I were on a jury, how I would vote. And so yes. in, in this case, if you were on the jury in the in the Wallace case, what would you vote? Would you vote guilty or not guilty? I'd have to say on the evidence, not guilty. Yeah, and now in in reality, have you know having looked at this case from all the background of it, all the details, all the research, uh, if not on the jury, just as, a, as an author, as a, as a person with opinions, what's your, what's your personal verdict? I think he's definitely guilty, uh, Christy. I think, you know, um, someone asked me recently, they said, uh, you know, you're researching that. Um, what I've tried to do with the book is totally be impartial, you know. I mean, to be honest, throughout the years, I've been sort of on the fence, to beat things like what was my biggest problem was that there was no there was when the police uh, examined Wallace there was no blood on him and I thought that's a strong point in his favour but you know when I've looked at all the facts and all the uh, trial transcripts and all the statements I claim to know there's no other conclusion and for me personally there was Wallace. I have to agree with you on that. It just feels like, you know, yes, granted, the jury didn't get all of this information and some of it, you know, has come out later that even the judge who exonerated him didn't have. But as we look at it, it just it feels so much like somebody who perhaps thinks he's clever because he comes up with one pretty decent idea, that being the pre-alibying of himself. And then gets complacent and doesn't really bother with seeing through the rest of it, like actually making it look like a real burglary or not poking holes in his own defense. Right. Yeah. That's a good point to him. And, you know, like all murders have noticed, have came to their dread that mistakes happen, don't they? Yeah, certainly. It's 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 a big undertaking. (laughs) <laughs> it is, yes. Uh, I guess that was sort of a pun there. I didn't mean it to be, but... <laughs> <laughs> that was a good pun. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's there's a lot to it because there's so many things that can trip you up, so many mistakes you can make. So let's say perhaps he did set himself up for an alibi and he decided he would... Maybe he did wear the Macintosh or at least use it as cover to prevent blood spatter. And then, you know, just, just kind of sat there and just kind of, you know, washed his hands of it and said, okay, that's, that's good. I'm good enough. And all these other things came up afterwards that maybe he didn't, you know, didn't foresee and therefore wasn't able to prepare for or, you know, um, sort of make any sort of show of like the, the not really realizing that it wouldn't look like a burglary at all. Definitely. And um, another thing that happened, Christy, was um, within a few days Two, two days of the murder, the police actually determined that the phone call was actually traced, which in them days, you know, they didn't really hold much hope for it. But the caller had made a bit of a hash, you know, of making the call. It actually took three operators to get the call put through. Now, people say, oh, it was, if it was um, in Wallace's defence, people who believe that Wallace was innocent say, oh, well, it defected in an... Um, erratic manner you know 
whoever's doing it and they're trying to implicate Wallace by having a call traced but that's nonsense because it couldn't be traced in them days to the point of like someone deliberately doing it and what I believe right and I think the evidence proves that is that unfortunately if it was Wallace that night the phone call had a mechanical mm. failure on it the phone actually had a mechanical failure to his detriment unfortunately for him yeah, and because he probably there are some arguments that he would have wanted it uh, traced so that there was evidence that there was a call. But at the same time, he, if it was him making the call, he made it from the phone box closest to his house. That's right, four hundred yards. Yes, that was the nearest phone call to his house. Just... Which even even more, you know, the police thought, oh, well, that's a golden nugget to them. You know, that's put them on their case right away. Even more, one of the biggest factors of their you know, investigation. Absolutely, yeah. If I were if I were a, a detective investigating this and came upon that little bit of information, I'd I'd think I struck gold. Yes, definitely. So yeah, it definitely puts him uh, puts him close to uh, the the place where the call might have been made um, if it's directly by his house. And uh, I I assume that there were not phones in the home. No. No, um, the Wallaces didn't have a phone, no. And most people didn't um, then, Christy, you know. I mean, Wallace said, when, when he was asked at the trial if he'd used that call box before, he said, yes, you know, one or two times. Now, that doesn't mean anything, you know, that whether he's guilty or innocent, it could be, you know, he did actually use the phone call, uh, that, you, that phone box. And then muddying the waters even more, there were questions as to, well, would anyone have actually known he was going to be at the at the chess club that night? And he actually said no, but his name was on a list for their, you know, their championship that was occurring that night or contest of some kind. Um, and so, so anybody who frequented that that location could have easily seen that. So it's funny that again, if he's if he's clever and setting himself up, he's also poking holes in himself. Yes. Well, I think, you know what he's doing there? You know when they're saying about, would anyone know you're there? I think he's playing it down by saying no, you know, to not look. Now, the thing is, you're right, they'd have a, they had the fixture list on the chess club board. Now, the thing is, Christy, that Wallace, although he went to the club, he hadn't been there in two months. His, you know, his attendance was very erratic. And what people believe, you know, who believe Wallace was guilty was that, let's say there's a third party called Qualtro. They're putting a lot of faith in Wallace going into the chess club that night when he hadn't been there two, in two months. And it would be marked on the, you know, it give you the dates as well and when he'd appeared. So any, so a casual murderer wanting to go in there and see, oh, well, Wallace, will he turn up tonight? Well, the chances are he hadn't been in two months, so no. Yeah, definitely. It feels like it. There, there's, there's a risk being taken if you're trying to set it up so that he'll be out of the house, and the chances are not in your favor. Which, if you're trying to commit a murder, you don't want that. Mm. But he's also taking a risk by having the chess club be the beginning of his alibi, because that very question can be raised: of, well, you haven't even been there in two months, so why would anyone expect you to be there that night, especially somebody you never met? Exactly. Yes. And, you know, the prosecution said, have you ever had a message like this left for you before, you know, anywhere? And he said, no, never. So, you see, when it being another person, you know, Qualtro to me, they were relying on Wallace. 
if it was another person wanting to send Wallace on a wild goose chase the following night, they were relying on him. You know, they were putting a lot of luck in him doing it, carrying it out, because he could have easily looked up the address in a directory. You know, Wallace was a he was a prudential collector. And most of them had, you know, maps of Liverpool directories. And one of the things was that the prosecution said was, um, didn't you think of looking the address up, you know, that the Tuesday? I mean, there was a library that Wallace used to frequent just not far from his house. And Wallace's reply was, I didn't think of it. Now, this is totally against his character, Christy. He's, he was a very meticulous person, you know, done everything by the book. But for this day, I always said, I've always said that for such an intelligent man and well-read, he acted quite idiotically for two days, Wallace. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it was this being maybe too much in his head where he, you know, was was planning this out and... You know, it, it, but it all had to be stuck up in his head. It's not like you could, you know, can or should sit down and write out your murder plan. <laughs> you know, yes. Yeah. Even even if you burn that, it's still I still call that risky. And so yeah, it, it might have been a case of him. You know, he he might have, might have normally been meticulous, but a he's doing something he's never done before. B there's mm-hmm. emotions wrapped up in it, uh, whether they be negative or or what, because it's it's his wife. So that you know that definitely complicates things and makes it harder to think clearly. Yes. And then C. It's just a matter of it's it's like we said it's a big I'll do it again undertaking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fun so nice. I used it twice. Uh, so, but yeah, it's, it's such a big, a big thing to to accomplish. And there's so many moving parts with you know alibis and blood spatter and motive and you know fake robbery. All of these different things that it's it's definitely you know that that there's a reason why they call it the perfect murder, and it very rarely is. The the thing is, the perfect murder has already happened, and we don't even know the victim. You know, <laughs> like that's what yes, the perfect that's, murder that's, is. Yeah, that's true. Yes. So, so yeah, it's definitely a fascinating case. There's a lot, a lot to it. Um, I mm. wanted to bring up an interesting thing that happened while I was reading the book. Was, so my co-hosts on this show, their names are Amber and Scott. Scott's last name, longtime listeners will know, is Mort. Uh, Mort being, he, he's mentioned a couple times, French for uh, death. And his, no. his family was legendarily uh, uh, executioners. In right. uh, in France and probably, you know, like had that guillotine going a little bit. <laughs> um, really? Well, yeah. I came upon and I'm trying to. OK, I want to make sure I got the name right. I came upon the coroner in this case in Liverpool was George Cecil Mort. Mort. Yes, you're right. <laughs> and... Very uh... Very apt name for the coroner, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great for an executioner. It's great for a coroner. Um, and <laughs> so I, I sent uh, a quick link to Scott uh, to see what he thought. And then I found that also a couple pages later, I found uh, the picture of uh, of George Cecil Mort. And I sent th- uh, that to him. And he said, that looks like my father. <laughs> Really? <laughs> so there may be he's going to he's going to do some research and see uh, there may be a familial connection. Maybe it's a, you know, like second, third, fourth cousin, eight, eight times removed. Who knows? But yeah. but yeah, oh, there's definitely a, a couple of funny coincidences going oh, on. Oh, that's there. that's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I hope he is. Really. <laughs> that would be really, really neat. Yeah, it would. Be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I wanted to ask you about your research process for this case. Was there anything, I mean, I know you, you, you said you've been fascinated by this for many years. Did you already have everything compiled or did you have to go out, uh, go out, you know, hunting for documents and such? Yes. Um, I, I uh, contacted the, the thing is, uh, Christy, you know, a lot of the books years ago, like by Jonathan Goodman and Roger Wilkes, to be fair to them, they didn't have access to the police records. The police files were closed, you know, and they only became opened in about 1992. You know, and James Murphy, the previous book uh, in 2001, he actually ac- accessed the police records, you know, and he came up, he found things in it that Goodman and Wilkes didn't have access to. So I, what I done was I accessed the police files myself, you know, in 2007. Then I, um, I went to the National Archives in Kew down, you know, in, in London in 2011 and, and copied all of their records. They were available. And then... Um, also, the modern incarnation of Wallace's solicitors at the time, Hill Dickinson in Liverpool. And my research was based totally, you know, mainly around them three sources. Was there... I, I have a I have a penchant for like fun little obscure facts. Um, I, it, it's one of those things that when you dig really deep into a case, you find the stuff that that didn't necessarily make you know most mainstream accounts. Did you find any fun facts either about uh, about Liverpool uh, or about the case that, or the the parties involved uh, in in all your research? Um, that's a good question. Um, I know. When I was looking amongst the at the police records, um, you know the idea of the name Qualtro. You know, people say Wallace probably if it was Wallace who done the murder, he used that name so it would immediately people would remember it because it's unusual. You know, now people would probably remember Smith or Jones, but Qualtro it stood out. Now, when I'm looking amongst the records in um, the police records in Liverpool, um, Detective Sergeant Harry Bailey, he was given the um, the job of, you know, um, finding out the amount of people in Liverpool called Qualtro. Now, there's 14 families of that name. Well, one of them, ironically, a Richard James Qualtro, he, he was actually insured with the Prudential with um, when the co-worker I told you about before, Joseph Marsden, actually collected from him. Now, I thought immediately, I thought... Has Wallace known this and deliberately used the name Qualtro to plant a deceitful little clue, you know, to deflect suspicion onto someone else? So that was a bit of an eye-opener, you know. Oh, does someone named Qualtro who gets collected from the Prudential? So that was probably the main one. It's again like he put so much effort into that that alibi uh, that he just he just got tired and gave up on the rest of it. Yes. Yes. Oh, that is, uh, that's definitely interesting. That's fascinating. Uh, so what are you working on now? Do you have any, any new projects in the pipeline you can talk about? No, not yet. <laughs> I'm still, you know, still working on this and that. Well, you know, the promotion of it and that, sorry. Um, I've got a few ideas, but I'm not sure just yet. Probably another true crime one, you know. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I, I hope to, uh, to read some more of your work down the line. Oh, thanks, Kirsty. I appreciate that. Absolutely. So uh, the the book, you should definitely pick it up. It is Checkmate, The Wallace Murder Mystery by Mark Russell. It is available from mangobooks.co.uk. And there will be a link in the show notes so you can go take a look. Uh, I'd really like to thank you, Mark, for joining us. 
We, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down uh, so we could discuss this fascinating case and your, your excellent book. Oh, thanks a lot, Christy. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And uh, thanks to our listeners, as always. And we'll, uh, we'll see you in our next episode. So, bye. <laughs>